0: Apparently, Tyson Fury relinquished his license with the British Board of Boxing Control before he won the WBC World Heavyweight title in the Deontay Wilder rematch. And as such, that could actually put him beyond the reach of the UK Anti-Doping Agency, who may be investigating him over these allegations that a member of his team uh, attempted to bribe a farmer and get the farmer to say that he provided uh, wild boar meat to Team Fury when he actually didn't. I've covered that story in other videos. So, yeah, we had been wondering, I certainly have been wondering, where this situation was going to go. And whether Tyson Fury was vulnerable to being banned uh, you know, by the British Boxing Border of Control uh, due to the situation with UCAD. Maybe I mean, they were talking about up to eight years he could be banned for. That would certainly be terrible for anybody who's a boxing fan because we want to see the undisputed fight. And it's not just about the undisputed fight. It's about Tyson Fury being in the undisputed fight. I don't want to see no undisputed fight with AJ versus Dylan White. No, no, no. I want to see Tyson Fury versus AJ, okay? Because Tyson Fury, we know, has beat Klitschko, has beat Wilder. He's undefeated. He's British, obviously. That's the fight we want to see. AJ versus Tyson Fury. Now, it almost certainly looks like, based upon what's going on with UCAD and this current situation, Tyson Fury may never fight in the UK again. That's the way it's looking. at I hope I'm wrong, but it's looking like he may never fight in the UK again. Therefore, the undisputed fight would have to happen overseas. Now, some people have said it's not such a big deal for AJ Fury to happen overseas. I think Frank Warren was saying this, actually. He said, look, Muhammad Ali fought Joel Frazier. That's two Americans. And they fought in the Philippines, in Manila, in their third fight. Ali fought George Foreman, two Americans in Congo, in Africa. But the difference between that and the undisputed fight between AJ and Fury is that it's very, very rare to get two Brits fighting for the world heavyweight title anywhere in the world, much less in the UK. And there's never been two Brits fight for the undisputed world heavyweight championship in the UK before. So that's very different to what Ali and Frazier did in Manila or Ali and Foreman did in Zaire because most of Ali's world title fights were in the States. Most of Joe Frazier's world title fights were in the States, Right. So it wasn't really a big deal for them to go fight elsewhere in a different country because they fought in their own country in world title fights for essentially the undisputed so many times. Not the case with AJ and Tyson Fury. So uh, yeah, that is disappointing that Tyson Fury has relinquished his license anyway. And basically, you know, it's it's an interesting move, isn't it? Did he preempt what the British Boxing border Control were gonna do? Did he know that he might have issues with UCAT again in the future or the British Board? Because why else would he give his license back? You know, interesting move. But Tyson Fury is a very intelligent man and he likes to stay, you know, a step ahead. So anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below about this current situation and everything I've discussed in the video. All right, it's happening, I'm out.
1: Raheem
0: with the real deal of Vander Holyfield first I want to talk about your experience with Lennox Lewis
1: well you know the thing is Lennox Lewis always been there like, very knowledgeable technician and all that and so the thing is that on the only thing that you know the first fight I fight Lennox, you know now like he. I mean, personally, we. I, you know, my own thing, I never attack nobody personal, anyway. You know, you know, you know. So the easy thing for me is to say not to say nothing. But he, he, he come tell me and said, well, Evander, Evander supposed to be a Christian. He got all these kids out of wetlock. You know, we don't, we don't touch on personal stuff like that well you know we, we you because know, this thing about boxing and this thing ain't about like this but it's obvious somebody had to tell him to, to do it and of course then somebody called me and told me i need to say these things about him you know but i realized that below the belt i, I you know i don't know if it's true or not but i'm not gonna say it so i just said i'm gonna knock you out because that's what boxers do. Say we gonna knock somebody out, but it was kind of foolish for me to say that, because the fact that the man he he too big, he too big for me to go tell him what I'm gonna do, and like this, and and all he gotta do is grab me and hold me and hug me, which he did pretty much the whole fight. This this kind of you know he when I come in he he grabbed me, and make sure that that's not gonna happen, which kind of killed my spirit. 'Cause I told him I was gonna knock him out the third round. <laughs> then it's almost like psychologically I didn't prepare. <laughs> I didn't prepare myself for for twelve round, I prepared myself for three. Cause I said I'll go <laughs> knock him out. And that's how much I believe it. And 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 after that third round that that bell then that bell rung and, and it seemed like everything started happening to me. He was just, he me my eardrum and all this and stuff like that. But but only reason why I didn't quit though, now, now I was thinking about quitting. My son was out there. Mm. And I could see him just looking like sad. So I realized if I quit, they gonna tell my son, you're gonna be just like your daddy. When things got the pressure hit him, he quit. That's the only reason why I didn't quit the fight. And I just did the best I could. They called it a draw. And they got all upset by the draw. I can't believe this and all this. And so they asked me, and I said, well, you know, I said, look. I said, shoot, my eardrama drama bust and all that. He still didn't do nothing. I said, he was, I said, he was, I said, he was too skeptical. I yeah. said, still him just coming on and just knocked me out. I said, well, you knocked the other guy like that. Well, you ain't take that chance. And so the fight was a draw then so we fight again and i wasn't sick at all this fight i was taking it to him i was letting him know oh you fought a sick person that time but ain't no sense and right after the fight said, oh, i'm sick because i ain't trying to say that but okay if you didn't get me on it now in this in that last fight we fought i knew i beat him and they gave it to him. I ain't said nothing. Okay. So I realized that. Well, I guess I ain't gonna quit, cause I can't, I can't, I can't quit on, on a bad decision. So he didn't want to fight. He didn't want to fight that guy John Ruiz either. So he he give up a belt. And I fight John Ruiz and I win. I'm the full time headweight champ of the world. That's it. One fight on four time you know, my own thing. They asked me, they asked me in in 1984, when I came from the Olympics, say, do you wanna break Ali record? I told them no. They said, Why? I because that means I had to lose. I'm not planning on losing. Unfortunate when you in a when you have great fighters in your era, it show you how tough you are when you have to get up from losing one and go back in and so of course I had to do that a number of times, and I and, and here I am full-time man which of the world so I realized oh that's a that's something great but at first how you know I I'd rather be wanting out beat everybody and show you what kind of error you had you know everybody was just like this, and when nobody know better than the others, you can whoop them all. That, with all the different styles, that's, that's what makes a big difference.
0: It seems like Carl Froch still enjoys trolling the public. He recently said this on his podcast about Gennady Golovkin. He said, we were in talks with his manager. They were trying to get me down to 166 pounds. That doesn't sound like much weight, two pounds below the super middleweight limit. I was a machine at super middleweight. I could have, or I, excuse me, I could not have lost another two pounds and performed. They were just trying to drag me down that bit further. I said, look, let's make the fight and make it at super middleweight. You think you're too much for me? You'll back me up and knock me out. Let's do it at super middleweight. Don't forget, I was out the ring. This was after I'd been retired a year. Then the talk started to get a bit serious. They were just trying to drag me down to a weight division I wouldn't have been able to do it in. At the time when we were talking, I was 168 pounds, a lifetime, excuse me, 186 pounds, a lifetime heaviest, so I've got to get myself down to super middleweight, which would have been hard. And they were trying to drag me down even further, and that's why the fight didn't happen. In my opinion, I beat him up because I'm too big and too strong for him. I might be wrong, we'll never know, but I would back myself to beat him. There will be a lot of people listening saying, no, 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 load of bollocks, Golovkin would beat you. Eventually, Golovkin's power would tell, he'd land on you, he'd hurt you, he'd break you down and stop you. What I'd say to that is I've never been stopped. I've only ever been put down twice in my career and I got up to win both times. You can say either of us are a clear winner. I think I beat him by stoppage. I'd be hitting him that much, that hard, a little bit like the Lucian Boutte fight. Back him up to the ropes, back him up, smash him to bits. You know how I roll. What a great fight that would have been and I'm man enough to admit I could have come unstuck. I could have got my nose broke. I could have got my eye cut and been blinded in one eye. I could have got ironed out. I never think I'd uh, be knocked out because I've been hit with some big shots, uh, big shots in my career and I've never felt them, but they never bothered me that much. I've never been flattened like Amir Khan, have I? I never think I'd be knocked out because I've been hit with some big, big shots in my career and I've felt them, that they never bother me that much. I've never been flattened like Amir Khan, have I? So those are the words of the Cobra Karl Frutch, still taking digs at Amir Khan after all these years. <laughs> still saying that he's too big, too strong, that he would have battered Gennady Golovkin the same way he did Lucian Bute. Incidentally, Gennady Golovkin flattened Lucian Bute in the amateurs. That fight is on YouTube for any of you guys to watch. I think that Gennady Golovkin. Would have been a much more difficult fight for Carl Froch than Lucian Bute. I think Gennady Golovkin, despite the fact that he's the smaller man, is stronger than Lucian Bute. I think more durable and just a better fighter overall, in my opinion. Uh, Lucian Bute always had an air of vulnerability about him. If you're talking about prime Golovkin, do I think he was a little overrated by HBO and many of his fans at the time? Yes. But Golovkin was still a fantastic fighter. I mean, you look at the Canelo Alvarez fights. The first fight in particular was very tough for Canelo. Even the second fight was tough when Golovkin decided to box. Uh, Danny Jacobs, of course, that was a real competitive fight. I personally thought Jacobs shaded it. But still, Golovkin put Jacobs on the ground. You know, Jacobs a very talented fighter. Carl Frotch, not as fast as, uh, or skilled as Canelo or Jacobs, Easier to hit than both those guys. Did he hit harder than Canelo and Jacobs? Possibly, possibly. Um, But then again, I don't know. 168, Canelo seems to hit pretty damn hard. And 175 as well. So I think Frotch versus Golovkin would have been a fascinating fight. Undoubtedly would have been a war. Who would have won? I mean, I'm glad Frotch admits that he could have got himself beat, but he's also confident. As you would expect, but if I had to pick prime for prime, who would have won? I might actually go with Golovkin. I might go with a Golovkin win on points. That's what I might go with. I know that Karl Froch has got the longer reach and all that kind of stuff. Um, but is his offense sophisticated enough to be able to catch Golovkin? You know, one of the things I will say, though, which kind of makes me second guess what I've just said, is that Karl Frutsch is very good at flurrying the way he did against Lucian Boutte and other fighters, and if, you, you see, if he's got a stationary target in front of him and he's, he decides to flurry, Golovkin is a guy who will freeze when you're flurrying at him. If you're throwing a big salvo of shots, he might try and punch with you for the first couple, but after that, he has a tendency to just stand there and take your punches before, you know, delivering his own. I mean, we saw that in both Canelo fights, we saw that even when he fought Willie Monroe. There was a moment there where he just stood there and Monroe was hitting him with all kinds of different shots, and Golovkin wasn't firing back. We even saw that late in a Danny Jacobs fight. So Golovkin is a little passive when somebody is putting it on him. And that would concern me for him against Carl Frutch, because Carl Frutch will open up. Carl Frutch always had tremendous stamina. Even late in a fight, he can put punches together and flurry. Uh, But at the same time, Golovkin, very technically good. He could counter Carl Froch, I think, quite easily over Froch's shots. I think Froch would have to box the same kind of fight he boxed against Arthur Abraham or George Groves in the rematch. And then maybe he could win. I mean, look, I think there's a case to be made that either guy could win the fight. But I don't know, man. I just think Golovkin is a lot better than Arthur Abraham. Arthur Abraham's probably got a tighter defense. In fact, he's definitely got a tighter defense than Golovkin. But he's nowhere near as skilled on the front foot as Golovkin is. And yeah, Froch was able to beat Arthur Abraham quite comprehensively. Maybe he could catch Golovkin more, but Golovkin could catch him more. I don't know. It's a fascinating fight. I wish it would have happened to be honest with you because I would have loved to have seen it, but uh, it wasn't to be. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. Gennady Golovkin versus Carl Froch. I'm kind of going back and forth in my mind right now. I initially said Golovkin on points. Now I'm second guessing, thinking maybe Crush could do him on points. Maybe somebody wins by knockout. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below What's happening about. I'm going to quote Teddy Atlas here, and he is talking in regards to potentially hooking up with Andy Ruiz to train him. He said the following, I haven't agreed to anything other than saying that if you're serious, you come to New York and you spend a couple days with me. During that time, I would work in the gym, see how coachable you are. Get an idea and a feel for your attitude and ask some very important questions. I think it's important for you, but definitely important for me. Why is this important to you now? You're a multimillionaire. Why is it important to you? Why? Why do you want to continue doing this? And what is your expectation? And I would listen to him. And then I would have a decision to make. And he would have a decision to make whether or not he could get along with my philosophy that he could buy into what I would believe. With a kid like Ruiz is almost like dealing with, and this is going to sound harsh and I don't mean it to sound harsh, but again, the truth sometimes can sound that way. It's almost like dealing with a drug abuser, you know, he's got a problem with eating. And if you had a kid that you were really trying to save from drugs, what would you do? You don't have to be a drug counselor to understand that you'd remove him from the things that are comfortable for him. You remove him from his surroundings. Well, the same thing with Ruiz. I'd have to remove him from his surroundings. Oh, Teddy, you don't want him to be with his father. Oh, you don't want him to be with his family. Oh, you want to be a dictator? Uh, yeah, yeah. You want to call it that? Go ahead and call it that. You have to do what's going to be able to change things. He goes on to say, I think it's wrong. That'd be part of it too. And he says this in regards to Ruiz firing Manny Robles in the wake of his loss to Anthony Joshua in the rematch. He said, those will be part of my questions because I would want to know. So you think that other people are guilty of the fault here and it doesn't lie on you? Because being able to take responsibility and even loyalty, you just touched on it. There's a power to that. There's a strength to that. And not being able to do that, there's a weakness to that. He then goes on to talk about Ruiz's immediate future. He said, it wouldn't be about the next fight. Yeah, he's going to win the next fight. Who do you think he's going to fight? Look, if we're going to talk the truth, we're going to talk the truth. So the next fight's going to be okay. Then it's going to be a tough one. Then it's going to be one of the real ones. And so what is the objective here? For Teddy Atlas to come in for him to win the next fight? To win the next two fights? Or is it to be able to have his life in check, have control over his life, have true success with his life. What's it about? So those are the words of Teddy Atlas. Now I have made a video about this before. Interesting because this is apparently a relatively recent interview with Atlas here. It was reported a while ago that Atlas and Ruiz had worked together or had done some type of trial together. Maybe this Interview has been published late and actually took place a long time ago. Maybe they've gone through their trial. I don't know. But I did wonder how good a personality fit Ruiz and Atlas would be. Atlas admitted there that he is a dictator when it comes to dealing with his fighters. And you can see it in the corner, the way he talks to his fighters. And it's imperative for boxing fans to understand that there is no one size fits all method to training a fighter. Fighters have got different personalities. They have different psychological buttons that you need to push in order to get the best out of them. With some fighters, you can be a dictator. You can be authoritarian. You can be like a drill sergeant, the way Teddy Atlas is. But for other fighters, that's not gonna work. That's actually gonna be counterproductive. With other fighters, you need to make them happy. So you need to understand the fighter's psychology how they're different, what makes them tick, and then go from there. And obviously, not all trainers are going to be good at dealing with particular personality types. Some trainers are going to be better at dealing with fighters who are more laid back. Some trainers are going to be better at dealing with fighters who are more aggressive. Some trainers are going to be dealing with better at dealing with fighters who are very, you know, well-disciplined. Other trainers will be good at dealing with fighters who are not so well-disciplined. So again, there's no one-size-fits-all trainer for everybody. And that's why you have to shop around if you're a fighter. But the crucial thing here is, does Andy Ruiz know what kind of trainer he needs? That's the crucial thing. Because Andy Ruiz could go around and you know shop around different trainers and have trials here and there. And there could be certain trainers who are right for him, but in Andy Ruiz's head, he thinks, nah, I don't want to go with this guy. Does he know the right kind of trainer for him? Perhaps there's a lot of confusion in his own head right now. I guess it's a matter of going there and seeing how he feels, training a few weeks with somebody, seeing how they get along. How do I feel about the situation? Am I getting the results in the short time I've been training with this guy during his tra- trial period? As I said before, from a stylistic point of view, I think that Andy Ruiz hooking up with Teddy Atlas is a fantastic pairing. Teddy Atlas, obviously being a student of the late Costamato, teaching that pressure style which Costamoto called elusive aggression. Because he liked his fighters to be aggressive and crowd-friendly, but he also liked them to have head movement, uh, to throw their punches correctly, to be elusive, coming forward, etc., etc. So I personally think it's a great pairing from a technical point of view, from a stylistic point of view. I'm just not sure if the personalities are going to gel. Yeah, what are the triggers? What are the the buttons that you need to press with Andy Ruiz psychologically to get him to be at his best? Maybe it is a case of taking him away from his family, taking him away from his friends. Then again, maybe it's not. Maybe if you take him away from his family and friends, he'll feel so lonely, he'll feel so isolated, that he'll actually underperform in the gym. I mean, when he was with Abel Sanchez, he apparently left the camp, if memory serves me correct, just after a few weeks. Part of that could have been the altitude training, because the altitude kills a lot of the heavyweights up there and a lot of other fighters in Big Bear. They can't take the altitude, but maybe it wasn't just the altitude. Maybe it was being away from his uh, friends and family and familiar surroundings. It's like Angel Garcia would always say about Danny, his son. Danny doesn't need to go up to Big Bear. He doesn't need to go up to the Poconos to train. He trains right here in Philly where he's comfortable. And hey, if it works for Danny Garcia, it works, right? Danny Garcia is a very disciplined guy. You don't see him blowing up in weight, getting out of shape. Training right at home works for him. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But for Andy Ruiz, it is broke. It does need to be fixed. So is Teddy Atlas the guy to do it? I guess we'll see. From a fan perspective, I would like to see Teddy Atlas and Andy Ruiz work together. And I would like it to work because I want to, you know, see Andy Ruiz implementing some of that costamado technique. I'd like to see that. Yeah, I think it could be very effective. Anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. Finally, a rare bit of good news for Mick Hennessy. Tyson Fury has agreed to pay him 1.5 million pounds in an out-of-court settlement. When Fury left Hennessy, Hennessy filed a lawsuit for breach of contract, and rather than get dragged through court, Tyson Fury has decided to pay him this lump sum instead. Now, I had heard rumors that Mick Hennessy was in financial trouble after the Huey Fury-Joseph Parker fight, because he came out of pocket for that fight, he spent a lot of money putting it on, didn't even have a broadcaster, remember, and... Again, it's just a rumor. He was having a lot of financial difficulties after that. And there's also a rumor that Tyson Fury helped him out during that time. And that is what caused the rift because Tyson Fury wasn't happy with the way the money was paid back or wasn't paid back, so on and so forth. Again, that's just a rumor. I cannot confirm it to be true, but I want to put it out there because it's something I've been told behind the scenes. But what we do know is that, as I say, Tyson Fury has now settled out of court with Mick Hennessy, paying him $1.5 And that's obviously going to be a boost for Mick because he's a relatively small-time promoter. He doesn't have a regular TV gig. He has been doing shows on uh, Channel 5 over the past few years, but they're very, very few and far between. And Mick Hennessy, you do kind of feel for him to a certain degree. Look, I don't really care about promoters as long as there's good boxing on. I don't care who's actually uh, putting on the shows. But with Mick Hennessy, every single one of the major fighters that he's had has left him. (laughs) And they've usually left him before they started to make the big money. So for example, you had James Gale leave Mick Hennessy. You had Carl Frotch, leave Mick Hennessy. You had Eubank Jr., leave Mick Hennessy. And of course, Tyson Fury, probably the biggest one of all, well, certainly the biggest one of them all, left Mick Hennessy. And that's after Tyson Fury and Hennessy were supposedly tight. That's after Tyson Fury and Mick Hennessy were gushing about each other in interviews over the years, talking about how they're loyal and how Fury's going to be with Mick Hennessy till the end. Well, loyalty in boxing, it's not really what's the word I can choose? It's not really practical. Let's just put it that way, especially for the boxer and especially when you're dealing with promoters. I was listening to a Boxing Beats and Rhymes video uh, earlier today, and he said that being loyal to trainers is you know, more preferable than being loyal to promoters and managers, etc. I haven't really thought about that, especially you know, deeply enough to really form an opinion on whether one is not as bad as the other. But me personally, in general, I'm just not in favor of fighters being loyal to anybody, be it a manager, a promoter, or a trainer. Because if you get stuck with a certain trainer and he's not the guy to make the most of your physical gifts, and he's not the guy who can teach you the most, if he's and he's not the guy who can take you the furthest, just because you've been with him from the start are you gonna continue to stick with him and potentially not become the fighter you could be out of loyalty? You see, that's where for me, it all falls down. I can't advocate fighters being loyal even to trainers, you know, just because the trainer was with them from the start and they've got a personal relationship, they've been with each other through thick and thin. If you wanna retain the trainer in some capacity, maybe as an advisor, maybe as an assistant trainer, Etc. it's all good. But to just stay with them and not bring another trainer in, I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, Tyson Fury is a good example. When he split from Ben Davison, he actually wanted to bring in Javon Sugarhill as the head trainer and have Ben Davison maybe as an assistant coach. Ben Davison didn't like the idea of that, so he split. But Evidently, Tyson Fury made the right decision. I questioned his decision. Many other people questioned his decision from a stylistic point of view. But evidently, Tyson Fury deciding to go down that road was the best thing for him because he learned the Kronk style. He picked up a lot of things from Javon Sugarhill very quickly and he implemented them in fantastic fashion in the Deontay Wilder rematch. So that's an example right there of a fighter who realized, you know what? My... Skill set is incomplete. There are other things I can learn, and this trainer right here, Ben Davison, who has been loyal to me and he's helped me get back on my feet, he's helped me lose all this weight, he's helped me overcome depression and substance abuse problems, etc. As good as he's been to me, he still can't give me what I need in the ring. There are certain things he can't teach me. Therefore, I'm gonna have to go elsewhere and find a trainer who can teach me those things. It's not personal. Do you understand? but a fighter only has a small window of opportunity within which to earn life-changing sums of money and within which to produce his best form. Tyson Fury understood that, hence why he switched up trainers and got Javon Sugarhill, a master stroke. So anyway, before I get carried away talking about Tyson Fury and trainers and all this kind of business, back to the matter at hand, Fury pays Mick Hennessy $1.5 Now, Mick Hennessy has threatened legal action against several fighters who have left him before, but he never seems to follow through with the legal action. Perhaps that's because he doesn't have the money to, he thinks he doesn't have a strong enough case. At the end of the day, if you've got enough money and you know, you decide to take legal action against somebody, Even if you don't have a particularly strong case, you might come off better in that situation, especially if they don't have the kind of money that you've got. Because you're going to have better lawyers. You could just drag the situation out in court for so long that they end up going broke and they have to drop the whole thing. Even if they are actually in the right. And many people in positions of power use lawsuits in that way to just tie their opponent up or try and bankrupt their opponent even if they themselves know they're in the wrong. This goes on. With Mick Hennessy, very seldom has he had the opportunity to do anything like that because he's never been a particularly big-time promoter in the UK. But I do respect the fact that Mick has doggedly hung in there because how many of our UK promoters have just bowed out of the game, particularly since Eddie Hearn hooked up with Sky? A lot of them just bow out because he's got a virtual monopoly on Sky. You got Frank Warren over on BT. The smaller promoters, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? I mean, you do have MTK putting on shows and they're kind of on Sky as well, actually. But people like Dave Caldwell have bowed out. Uh, You know, Frank Maloney bowed out of the boxing promotion game. And you do still have Cyclone promotions, but how long are they going to be around? Mick Hennessy has been around for, for a very long time and he's still going. I mean, even Barry Hearn bowed out of boxing. A lot of people forget that. He turned his back on the sport and he started, you know, well, he continued to concentrate on darts and snooker and all that kind of stuff, which he was doing all along. Uh, But yeah, he turned his back on boxing. So got a feel for Mick Hennessy to some degree, (laughs) just for his dogged determination, given the fact that he's never been particularly successful, relatively speaking. Anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. Obviously, 1.5 million at this point to Tyson Fury is chicken change. But maybe with the possibility of this UCAD situation uh, going to court, I mean, you never know. He thought, you know what? Let me just pay, make the 1.5 mil, get it over and done with. I don't need any additional court issues. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a drop in the ocean for Tyson Fury after all the money he's earned at this point. Anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. I'm going to quote Ben Davison here from a recent interview with Boxing Social where he was talking about the Tyson Fury Deontay Wilder rematch. He said, Going into the fight, I felt that Wilder had not yet shown that Wilder could perform on that level under that pressure on that stage. Whereas Tyson had his fight before with Vladimir Klitschko, that was his biggest fight. It was his first test at that level. Tyson knows that he rises to the occasion and that was a bonus going into the second fight. That was Advantage Tyson. And I think. That is sort of what Wilder was walking about with his suit. And I'm assuming that this article meant to say talking about with his suit. Anybody who has had a fight in the ring or outside the ring, the adrenaline you get in your legs, some people rise to it, some crumble, and some get stuck in with it. I'm not saying Wilder crumbled under the pressure, but I'm saying that's more what I think it was than the suit. I think he had adrenaline going through his body and I don't think he coped with it well. I think that's probably why he felt like his legs weren't underneath him, not because of the outfit he wore to the ring. And it was a question I asked myself before the the fight. We've not seen Wilder rise to the occasion yet, but we have with Tyson. It seemed to be that way. Wilder just didn't rise to it the way Tyson did. Okay, so those are the words of Deontay Wilder. And by the way, whoever transcribed these quotes here from the interview on boxing scene, you've made multiple spelling errors, which made me stumble throughout reading it. Anyway, what do I think of what Ben Davison has said here? Well, I personally didn't see any indications that Deontay Wilder was particularly nervous. Maybe he was. Maybe he put a lot of pressure on himself by painting himself as this hero for African-Americans and the fight was taking place during Black History Month and all this kind of stuff. Maybe that could have got to him, but I just didn't see any of that in his body language. And Deontay Wilder is a guy who tends to fight off adrenaline. That's how Deontay Wilder is. I think he's used to fighting off adrenaline. Now, the magnitude of the occasion, I don't think Wilder really felt like it was much different to the first fight, to be honest with you. If anything, I think Wilder was probably even more confident going into the rematch than he was going into the first fight because he knocked out Luis Ortiz. He knocked out Dominic Brazil, both in devastating fashion, whereas Tyson Fury didn't look particularly impressive in his previous fight against uh, Otto Wallin. So I personally think that Wilder was confident that Fury wasn't the same guy and all of these things, which Wilder tells himself in his head, I think he actually believes a lot of them, you know, and that is the source of some strength for him. But in the long run, it can also be a massive weakness because if he doesn't understand the mistakes that he made in the rematch, how is he ever going to correct them? And obviously, in the first fight, he didn't really take a beating of Tyson Fury. In the second fight, he did take a beating. And for people like Deontay Wilder, those kind of emotional, impulsive individuals, the the guys who thrive on adrenaline and emotion, with someone like that, I think that a devastating stoppage defeat impacts them more than somebody who is more cerebral. And I could give you some examples of that like, let's say, Mike Tyson. You know, his loss to Evander Holyfield in the first fight impacted him psychologically on a very, very deep level. He just could not get over it in time for the rematch. And, well, he was taken apart a lot more quickly and really got himself disqualified to get out of the fight because he didn't want to take another beating. Okay, that's an example of somebody, one of those emotional, emotional, almost animalistic fighters who are not, I mean, I would say Mike Tyson's a lot more cerebral than Deontay Wilder, but still Mike Tyson was in his feelings a lot, you know, whereas when you've got a more cerebral kind of fighter who can rationalize things and he can, you know, be philosophical and put things into perspective and he sees things in a very mechanistic way, fighters who think like that, who are more analytical and more calm, I think they're able in many instances, to come back from defeats better because they're analyzing what went wrong. They're thinking, okay, if I change this, if I do that, I can come back. Whereas a fighter who's more like a street fighter, who's not so analytical, he's just thinking, I took a beating. You know, he trades on this idea that he is more ferocious than his opponent. Where if he went in there and gets savaged by his opponent, like Wilder did in the Fury rematch, then Fury just beat him at his own game. Do you understand? So it can diminish Wilder's confidence because of the fact that, hang on, I'm supposed to be the beast and I got beasted. You get what I'm saying? For Wilder, it's not so much of a technical thing. It's just, I'm more of a beast than you. I'm more of a king. I've got a more extreme mentality. That's what wins me the fight. Well, he we didn't have a more extreme mentality than Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury took him to the cleaners. So how's Wilder going to deal with that? You know? So anyway, (laughs) I'm getting off topic here. The point I was making is I don't personally think that Ben Davidson is right. I don't personally think that Wilder's legs were weak because of adrenaline and all that kind of business. I think Wilder's legs were weak because he started getting hit with clean shots. What he was doing wasn't working. And when you're losing a fight, you feel the punches more. When you're winning a fight and you get tagged with a shot, It doesn't have, you know, as much, I mean, you know, sometimes you can get knocked out or get dropped with a shot. Don't get it twisted. But when you're winning a fight and you're getting hit with hard jabs in the face, for example, those hard jabs, you don't feel them as much as if you're losing a fight. If if, if you're five, six rounds down, you really feel them hard jabs in the face. (laughs) But if you're five, six rounds up, the jabs don't feel as bad to you. A lot of it is psychological. So the same way for injuries. If you are winning a fight and you've got a broken hand and you're winning handily, that broken hand don't hurt as much as if you're losing the fight. Yeah? Because when you're losing a fight and you've got a broken hand, you're thinking about the broken hand all the time. You're focusing on the pain. You can't help it. It's hard to block, block the pain out. Yeah? And I think that's what it was with Deontay Wilder. It's because he was getting beaten up and because he was losing he started feeling all the things that he normally wouldn't feel. He started focusing on all the things that he normally wouldn't focus on. I think Tyson, uh, excuse me, I think Deontay Wilder was shocked by the way Tyson Fury came at him early in the fight. I think he was shocked by how the first round went, how the second round went. He was just in a state of shock. I think that's what it was. I don't think it was the occasion or anything like that. I just think the guy was completely shocked by what was going on. And he'd never been in a position before where he was taking a sustained beating, losing every round. And yeah, he just started feeling things then. And then he's telling himself after the fact, oh, my legs were going up. It was the ring walk costume. It was this, it was that, it was the other. Yeah, he's he's reaching for excuses. He's clutching at straws. I don't buy it. I just think that, you know, Tyson Fury shot. You could see from Deontay Wilder's face, the way Tyson Fury flew out, you know, flew out the uh, the corner at the opening bell. And was straight on him. You could see Wilder was surprised by what Tyson Fury was doing. <laughs> he was shell-shocked. He, he never got over it during the fight. And I still don't think he's over it now. I guess we'll see in the rubber match if and when it happens. Let me know what you guys think in the comments section below. It's happening.